So again, if you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19, we're going to be in verses 13 through 30, theoretically. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15 reads as such, Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for, such, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to what you would say, Lord, that our, we wouldn't have a dullness in our spirits, God, that we would have an understanding, Lord, that all we, although we might hear the words, we pray that there would be a, an application in our lives that your spirit would bring. And so sensitize us now to your voice. In the name of Jesus, amen. Obviously a famous verse about children here. If you remember back in chapter 18, I'm, I'm thinking of this whole thing as a section. If you remember chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 6, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest among them? And uh, so Jesus, go ahead and he's teaching them. So he grabs a, a child. He says, child, come here. And a little child comes to him. And, and Mark tells us he holds him in his arms and he starts to teach the disciples about who's the greatest. And Jesus says to his disciples, unless you turn and become like one of these little children, by no means are you going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we see there in Matthew 18, Jesus calling a little child to himself and the child just responding to his voice and coming to him. And Jesus uses this as a picture of what anyone must be like who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They have to have a childlike response to the voice of God, the call of God. And it was simple as Jesus calling this one and the little one coming to him. That is exactly what every believer experiences when God calls us, that we respond to the voice of God as a humble child. We come to him and, and he wraps us in his arms. Amen. We love that. And so that's a picture there of the kingdom of heaven that he's trying to teach the disciples because he's taken off and all the spirit will come, fall upon them and he will be in them. And uh, they will be the ones then who are now proclaiming the gospel, the ones who are shepherding in the kingdom of God. And so as he's teaching to them uh, on all this stuff, he's going around places and he's, and he's healing people. And so that's the context there is he's healing the masses and you've got crowds following him. And we know that a massive amounts of people were following in Jesus. And as this has happened, obviously children, when this word for children is infants and toddlers there, uh, are being brought to Jesus, presumably by their parents, by their grandparents, by people who love them. And, and they're being brought to them so that Jesus might lay his hands on them and pray for them. Uh, without getting into depth about the laying out of hands, the idea is that when, when someone lays your hands on you, there's a, a, a blessing from God that they're seeking. They're, they're seeking God's will. They're seeking his direction. They're seeking his anointing, his blessing. Uh, and, and they're bringing, and, and by the way, this was, this was something that the, the uh, rabbis of the day, it was common to the rabbis, rabbis of the day, and so they would take their kids to the religious leaders for them to pray for them and for God to bless them. And by the way, when we do infant dedications, we haven't done one in a while. COVID kind of sunk that one for a bit. But when you have kids, and by the way, we do do infant dedications, what it is is, it's, is we're bringing the child in front of the church and we are laying hands on this child and we're asking for God's will upon this child, his blessing upon them, that his spirit would lead them and guide them and fill them and all those types of things, right? And not only that, we're also commissioning the parents, right? And not only the parents to uh, 
foster the kid in that way, but also the church, that we would be those who are looking out for one another. And so there was this sense of bringing children to Jesus that he would lay his hands on and bless him. And let me tell you, let's just bypass Pastor Matt. Let's go straight to Jesus. Amen? Yeah, yeah, that's what they were doing there. They're better to have the Son of God. Amen? <laughs> but they were doing that. But we have a problem. What's the problem? As the children were trying to bring their children to Jesus, who was getting in the way? The disciples, they were rebuking people. You'd figure you'd read the exact opposite, right? But that's not what's happening. The disciples, the ones who are actually supposed to be the ministers of Christ, the shepherds, the under-shepherds, the ones who are supposed to be bringing people to the Lord and pointing people to Him, they were actually pushing people away. For whatever reason they had, they kept people from coming to Jesus. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who wanted to come to Jesus? We know there was a cultural issue there. But he kept, they kept her away, and Jesus finally said, they'll come to me. And now here they're doing it again. They're keeping people from coming to Jesus. Now, obviously, the crowds were really pressing on Jesus. I mean, there were multitudes upon multitudes pressing upon the Lord all the time. Remember the story of uh, when the woman got, uh, with the issue of blood was healed? He, you know, uh, the, he, Jesus says, who touched me? Knowing full well who touched him. But the disciples respond, we, how in the world are we to know who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Right? And so probably in their kindness of their hearts and their concern for Jesus, they wanted to keep people. It's like, this is too much. Stay away. Keep your kids away. Too much. He's, he's busy with bigger things. And this is really revealing. You know, because they did not understand the heart of God. They didn't understand the, well, the heart of God. <laughs> they didn't understand the Lord, right? Unless we throw stones at them. I'm guilty of the same thing. Anybody else of, of instead of being a one who ushers people into the kingdom, who's assigned to people in the kingdom, one who makes it easy and clear to come into the kingdom of God, I'm often one who is an obstacle for people to come into the kingdom. Anybody else kind of feel like that? Okay, two or three of us. That's good. <laughs> yeah, well, you stay after class, right? But what happens is that, you know, we can look at the disciples and go, man, that's harsh. But, you know, we can do that in our own lives and how we prioritize maybe our, as parents, our children's lives. And we can put things, we can prioritize their lives so full of good things or other things that they don't have what would be a godly opportunity for them to en encounter the Lord. Now, God overcomes these things, no, no doubt. I'm not discounting the sovereignty of God, but we can get in the way. We fill their schedules and their time so full of stuff that they don't have time for the things of the Spirit. They're trained not to think that way. They're trained in the ways of the world. And they prioritize their lives in the way of the world. So that's one way we can do that. Think about that also in our own lives, how we do that to ourselves. Or maybe when we're interacting with others, we aren't sweet. We don't have the presence of Christ. Instead, we're off-putting and we're sharp, and we deal with people in a way that isn't loving or kind because of our own selfishness within our hearts. Guilty is charged, anyone else. And so we can be those who are obstacles to people coming to the Lord. So we have the same propensity in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our parenting. So the disciples aren't alone in this. So what does Jesus do about this? The disciples rebuked the people. It says in verse 14 now, but Jesus said what? 
let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now Mark's gospel and Luke's, but Mark's tells us, and Matthew doesn't, it was when Jesus saw the disciples doing this that he became indignant. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know, knock that off, you know, let them come to me. He became indignant in his spirit. There was something within him that was just set against what they were doing. He was entering into discipline mode. That word indignant there is a pretty heavy word. You, you can kind of get the idea. It means that you are sorely disappointed. And he says there, so he corrects his disciples there in verse 14 by telling them to let the little children come to him. Well, why does he want the little children to come to them besides they're just cute and they run around and aren't they just innocent and all that stuff? Why does he say that? He tells us, he says, for such belong to the king, belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Now, what, what is Jesus saying here? What does he mean by saying that term, for such belong to the kingdom of heaven? Once again, it appears Jesus is using something that's right in front of their face to paint a spiritual picture. So he's using children again, and he's actually going to go beyond children here, if you will, and he's going to paint a spiritual picture. Once again, he's doing this. What is plain is that Jesus loves the little children. Absolutely. Amen. Jesus loves the little children. And there was something about him, obviously being the son of God and God being love, but there was something about him that made parents want to bring their kids to him. There's something that made kids want to run to him when he called them, the way he loved them, the way he was kind, the way he was obviously safe. There's something about him that hat was full of love and care and concern. Isn't this what we all want to experience? Love, care, concern, and kindness towards us. So much more for our children. But for the disciples to be an obstacle in any way was a huge tell sign that they did not get it. They did not get it. They were missing the heart of the Lord for children. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom of God. And this is what he's teaching them in Matthew 18, 19, through the whole thing. He's teaching them the nature of the kingdom of God. Remember about forgiveness, about how to deal with sin from the outside and from the inside and how we are to forgive one another and how the church is to be pure and how we reconcile one another. And he goes on and talks about forgiving one another from the heart. And then he talks about divorce and the true nature of marriage and all these types of things. He's teaching them about the kingdom. It's no mistake this is put right here. But it's plain that Jesus loves the children. He wants them to come to him that he might bless them. And he told them, don't stop them. Don't hinder them from coming to me. Let them come to me. But then something that should make us think a little deeper. He says, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Listen, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, another way of saying this, and you will see this word order in the Greek. If you use that blue, blue letter Bible app, you go into the word order. It says it like this. He isn't, it says, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so it's not just talking about little children there. And we can have a whole discussion about children going to heaven and all that kind of stuff, which seems to be obvious from the text. But... He's saying for, for, for those that are like children enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, he's going back to the Matthew 18 thing. He's taking children, not only on surface value, saying he loves them, let them come to me. But he's saying that those who are of the kingdom are going to be coming to me, 
to coming to me like children, and don't you dare hinder them. Who was hindering them? The Pharisees. What did they just do with divorce? They were trying to divide the people against Jesus. And that's what was going on there. And so I believe that Jesus is indignant, not only with the disciples' total disregard for his heart for children, but they did not understand that those who come to him for salvation will be coming to him as like children in simple, obedient faith. And if they did not wake up, they would be the ones like the Pharisees who were hindering instead of helping his children to enter the kingdom of God. And the question is, and the application will be, in which ways are we helping or hindering? May the Spirit speak to his church. Amen? Amen. Yeah. So I believe that's the context there. So I pray we have God's heart not only for children in this church and in this school and in this valley and whoever we run into and that we would be those who make way for the king, make a straight path and consider them and all those things. Do that work in our hearts, Lord. They're not an inconvenience, even though they might be little rugrats and not paying attention and, and kind of inconvenient. How inconvenient children are these days. Amen? No. We were all once little children. When you think about it, this is kind of how believers come to the Lord. We don't have it all together when we come to the Lord. Amen? Actually, we have nothing together. We have nothing. Like, we're a mess. Diapers and all. But the Lord grabs us and brings us to himself and he cleans us and he teaches us. And as his spirit was in, in us, we now mimic him. We begin to mimic him, our father. And it's a different than the world. And we begin to grow in him and mature. And this is what the whole thrust of the gospel is. Grow up in him. Grow, grow in him. Lean into his spirit. Let his grace abound in you and be changed, right? And so that's that. And I, I want to go a little deeper, but I also want to go further. So, verse 16. From there, and behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Think about this for a second. Comes to him, says, What good, what good deed must I do to enter eternal life, to have eternal life. So he's asking that. And he's under the assumption that there is something good that he can do to attain eternal life. Listen, a lot of the world is under the assumption that they can do something good to attain eternal life, to nirvana, enter heaven, whatever their paradigm is, right? But it's a works-based salvation, if you will, and I'm throwing everything with a broad brush. That's the way of the world. That's what false religion is, by the way. Teacher, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus, as he usually does, he doesn't answer the question right away because he has something he wants him to know. Just like when they came to him about divorce, they didn't tell him about, talk to him about divorce until he explained the purpose of marriage. Well, he's wanting to know what good deed must I do? And Jesus isn't going to give him that right away. He's going to teach him something. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Now, if you think about that for a second, what, what's, what's he saying? 
And I think he's saying, in other words, there's only one who is capable of doing the good that you are asking about. There's only one who keeps things perfectly. There's only one, God. And actually, he's standing right in front of him. <laughs> Amen. And so you see, this man thought he was capable of eternal life through his goodness. Through his goodness, through his morality. And so we're dealing with someone who's moral here. We live in a culture with rampant immorality, right? Where people don't care about right and wrong sometimes. But what do we have here? We have someone who's very concerned about the keeping of the Jewish law of morality, of right and wrong, good and evil. What must I do? What can I do to please God enough to be in his kingdom, to have eternal life? That was his thought process. Jesus is going to show him that he can't. It's not possible. And so Jesus says to him, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He's all, here you go. If you want to have eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, there's 600 and something of them in the Old Testament. We know that. We've talked about that before. But just dialing it down to the 10, which Jesus is talking about here, he's actually talking about the second half of the 10, the second tablet of the law. He says, if you want to have eternal life through good works, you have to keep the commandments is the thrust here, which is true. But we know if we read the rest of our Bibles, it's not meant a one-time keeping of the law. It is perfectly always in action, in heart, and in deed. Perfectly keeping the law of God. That's the, God, that's, that's the standard. Who can do that? There's only one who is good. <laughs> Amen? Jesus earlier, what did he say? I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. What? But to what? Fulfill them. And not one thing is going to be erased from them until I do it. And he did. There's not one good except for him. So Jesus says, if you're in your life, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. So the guy asks in verse 18, he said, well, which ones of the 618? Narrow it down for me. How many of you are like, give me an example. I want to know which one so I can go do it. Anybody out there? Yeah, you got your lists and you check them off. Amen. So Jesus lists some of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. Think about this in your own life. Have you kept this? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And then verse 19, honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he lists that the Ten Commandments had two tablets. The first dealing with our relationship with God and the second tablet dealing with our relationship with one another. Yeah? Well, he lists several from the second commandment, but he, the last commandment is not what, that last, honor, uh, you shall love your neighbor from yourself, is not from the Ten Commandments. Actually, later, it's later in, De in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, actually. But it's interesting that Jesus said, that in that last one, love your neighbor as yourself, which is not in the Ten Commandments. As many of you know, the Ten Commandments are in the negative. They're all in the negative. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear fault with, well, false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, right? We all know that. It's in the negative. But this one flips it around. And it says, you shall love 
your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's different. You see, love fulfills the law. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder them. Amen. Yes? Okay, cool. We're all on the same page. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to lie to them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to cheat. You're not going to do all these things if you love the way God says to love, right? So love fulfills the law. And Jesus is not, again, quoting the Ten Commandments here, but also from the law of Moses, where he says in, 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 Moses, uh, in, Moses, in Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, I'll read it for you, uh, just verses 17 through 18. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That was the command for the people of Israel. And by the way, if we think that we, because that's Old Testament, we get out of that. What happens in Matthew 15? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. We don't get out of it. It's worse. Because <laughs> it's not only lo a love in deed, it's a love in heart that God requires. And that's the impossibility. I have a sermon amount. We've, went through, we've gone through that. Nevertheless, when the young man hears the commandments that Jesus listed off, verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? You know, Mark 10 says that the man said, all these I have kept from my youth. He was a young ruler, but he had kept them from his youth, from the time of his bar mitzvah when he was 13. He had kept these things from his youth. He was a moral young man. And he, he loved God, it seemed, and he tried to obey him, and he wanted to follow him. He wanted to be a, a godly young man. And I think that's a virtuous thing. And Mark also tells us in verse 21, chapter 10, verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Jesus looked at him as he's just marveling at this, this guy who wanted to follow the Lord. He says, he loved him. Isn't that great? That's the context here. He wasn't condemning him, but he was going to tell him the truth. He loved him. He loved the fact that his heart was towards God. But he goes, you lack something. And, and he goes, what do I still lack? This is what the guy says. He says, I've been doing this since my youth and I'm still lacking something. How many of you have tried to live a moral life and yet you still lack something within you? You know you are lacking something. And Jesus knows this about this guy. He knows exactly what it is. And Jesus tells him, you still lack something. I think this is great. And Jesus answers him about what he's lacking. Verse 21, follow along. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. That word perfect is, if you want to be complete. If you want to fulfill what is lacking. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. That's a, that's a buzz phrase, treasure in heaven. You will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, what did he do? He went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. There's a lot there. But what was keeping this man from eternal life was an obstacle in his life, in his heart. And that obstacle Jesus zeroes in on 
with the one thing that he must give up to have eternal life. You want to do the one good deed here? Here it is. <laughs> and it's not really even a good deed, so to speak. It's what is possessing you? Am I going to possess you? Or is something else possessing me? And this was the issue, is that his possessions were possessing him. He thought he was possessing his possessions, but it was the other way around. His possessions had his heart. And there is no room for the Lord Jesus to, to, to wrestle with a competitor in our hearts. You shall have no other gods before me. Tablet one, first commandment. He wants supremacy in our hearts. And in order to have supremacy in his heart, in, in, in our hearts, we must enter like children and say yes. By the way, I want to make this really clear. You do not enter eternal life by selling all of your stuff and giving it to the poor. Jesus is speaking to this guy about the obstacle in his heart of what would keep him not from buying eternal life, but from putting his faith in Jesus Christ. See, when the Holy Spirit comes and begins to speak to our hearts, if John says, that he comes and convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and the judgment to come. Of the sin in our hearts, we've sinned against God, and God will come and deal with that directly right away because it's our sin that separates us from God. And so there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit over our sin. And when Jesus spoke this to this man, I have no doubt this man was convicted because sin ruled his heart in his love for money. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, you cannot serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. There's only room for one. And when God pointed out the idol in his heart, the thing that ruled his heart, there was a conviction. Jesus, the Lord, the Father, comes to us and he convicts us of our sin. Why? Because he wants to remove our sin from us and has made the way to do that through his son. He wants to cleanse us from sin. Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, you're saved by grace through faith. We know this, right? And that not of yourselves. It's not works. It's not good deeds. You're saved by God's just absolute 100% kindness and love towards you. That's how you're saved. Because he, it was his idea. Not, not yours. Not mine. Because of his, you're by grace. And it's through faith. Faith in what? Faith in the fact that he gave his son to die for our sins. We believe that Jesus died to forgive us for our sins. So that conviction leads us in one of two directions. We scurry away like cockroaches into our sin or we lose our lives like moths in the light. We go to the light. We say, Lord, it is as you say. I am a sinner and I'm guilty before you, but guess what? Guess what? I believe that your son paid the price fully. Jesus said on the cross to tell us that it is finished. It's done. It's all paid for. It's gone. But you must believe. Amen? And so we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. No good works that can, can save you. 
It's a full work. We believe in his good work, the one who can only do the good work to save. Amen. And when we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, we begin as we are now changed by the Spirit of God to follow him. And this is what Jesus was saying to him. Give up your sin. Repent. And in that repentance, faith is manifested. Faith is proven by we are turning from sin and turning to God. That's how that faith is demonstrated. There's a turning from sin and a turning towards God, towards the Lord, who not only saves us, he's involved in the whole process, but we're born again. And that means now we have a new birth in us. We're a new nature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have life. You have treasures in heaven. That's what that is a term for. You have riches in heaven. Hey, sell all that stuff. Abandon your old life. Abandon sin, whatever it may be. And now you have treasures in heaven. You'll be born again and your riches are now up here, not down here. And now follow me. Follow me. And that's what the life of a believer is. That is what a Christian is. One who's been called out of the world into the kingdom. And now we follow Jesus Christ. We follow his spirit within us. That's what we're doing. Amen. Yes. And so that's what he's saying. Follow. He's our Lord. He's our supreme love. He's everything. You see, he said to this man, give it up and follow me just as he does to each one of us. And the childlike faith is, yes, Lord. And we leave it and we come to his arms and he grabs us. Amen? Amen. That's awesome. Jesus says to this guy, here's the good work you have to do. (laughs) Believe in my good work. (laughs) Abandon that junk and come follow me. So listen, as the Spirit is speaking here right now, Even as believers, we can hold on to stuff. We can re-institute the love of money in our life and all this kind of stuff. I don't know what's going on in your hearts, but he does. Let him speak to you this morning and give it up. Follow him. You'll have treasure. Amen. But this man, it says he went away sorrowful because he had possessions. And again, we can look at riches for a stand-in for whatever. Whatever would be the obstacle. For others, they'd say, hey, let me follow you. And Jesus says, they'd say to Jesus, hey, I want to follow you, but first I got to bury my, my dad. I got to go finish, you know, the fishing business or whatever it is with him. When I'm done with this, then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. I'm like, wow, that's harsh. What he's saying is, I've got to be number one. There can be no number I'm not competing. I'm number one. Get on the carrier. Sign your unconditional surrender to my heart. And here's the thing is, it's not a, we're now we're a slave. We now become sons and daughters. Treasures in heaven. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, as the man went away, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Great difficulty because it's impossible. It is impossible for the human heart to trust in God and not in their riches. That is who we are to our core of our nature. We trust in riches. We trust in stuff. No doubt. And Jesus is saying it is impossible 
it's impossible because he will say that in just a second. Again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Some say that this is a, was a picture of a gate that was on the, uh, on the uh, wall of one of the walls in the, in the city of Jerusalem and the camels had to kneel down and go through. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Some, some say it's literally just maybe a, a figure of speech. Obviously, a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying it's impossible it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The point is, is that those who have possessions trust in possessions, and it's very difficult for them to trust in God. We're Americans. Many of us have never experienced what it's like to be in the third world. I think if we spoke to the generations that before us, the ones who had dirt floors and the ones who didn't have plumbing and rose for those things and, and grew up poor, maybe perhaps some of you, they would have a, a greater idea about not having much. When we say we don't have much, it's, it's a different level of not having much compared to maybe the generation before us or the generation before that or perhaps the third world or... Listen, I, I grew up in San Diego and you drive south and you cross the border and there's open sewage and shacks and total poverty not that far away. Yes, there's poverty around us and I'm not minimizing that whatsoever. Some people are very poor here and they understand. That. But when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished because they said, who then can be saved? Again, Jesus is taking a standard, and we all think it's something. But he makes it worse than what we thought, like he did with marriage. Like he's doing now with the standard for rich people entering the kingdom of heaven. Those who have possessions. Listen, we, to be rich from a biblical standard means you have stuff in the fridge. You have clothes in your, in your drawers. You have a little bit of supplies. How many of us are rich? You know what I mean? It's very difficult because we trust in those things and not trust in God. We trust in our reserves instead of in Him. But Jesus looked at them and said, here's the, here's the, here's the hope, right? <laughs> with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Isn't that awesome? That God saves the rich and the poor. Something I was thinking about is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, hey, brethren, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about your calling. And he talks about the, the nature of believers when God called. He said, not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wealthy. Not many of you were of stature. Not many of you had great names and letters after your, your name and all that stuff. Not many. In other words, some, few, like Paul maybe, a few of them, but not many. Why is that? Is it that God doesn't want to save, save uh, rich people? Is that God is a socialist and hates rich people? And What is it? It's the human heart. Stuff becomes an idolatry in our lives, in our hearts. That's why not many. It's impossible. But listen, God does the impossible. He does the impossible. And rich and poor are saved by the grace of, of God as He works in us and as He 
convicts our hearts. And you can have riches and them not have you in, in Christ. Amen? You can have riches and them, have them not have you. And you realize that they are now a tool for the kingdom. They're not for you. They're for him. And you use them that way. And you are his ambassador. You are his minister. You are his administer of those resources that he's bestowed upon you and your giftings in, in the way it is. And that's how we look at stuff now in the kingdom, that it's his. It's not mine. But how many of us want to say that's mine? Yeah. Well, Jesus asked the man to sell everything, give to the poor. And it dawns on Peter at this point as we close that they had left everything. He goes, wait a second. We've done that. We've given up everything. He says there, Jesus, he says, we've left, left everything in verse 27. See, we've left everything and followed you. What, what then will we have? What, what's the end game here? What, what do we have? What are you going to give us? Now we've given up everything. And Peter, the Lord's response to Peter in verse 28. And this is, listen, listen to this, everybody. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, in the new world, in the age to come, in the kingdom that's coming, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You've given up everything now, but guess what? In the kingdom that's coming, the everlasting kingdom, and I believe here the millennium is in view here, but also beyond you guys who follow me, so minus Judas and add in Matthias or whoever else it is, the 12, the replacement, you will rule with me on 12 thrones over Israel. Those 12 guys, not minus Judas, are going to rule and reign with the Lord on 12 thrones. We will see them sitting on those thrones, ruling and reigning. They gave up everything now. But what happened? They had riches in heaven. Unending everlasting. One of the pictures that I love that Francis Chan uses is he pulls a rope out onto the platform and there's a little end that's pointed, pointed red, painted red and the rest of the rope goes that way off the stage. He goes, you know what? We're so focused on this red part that we forget about the rest of the rope. This is our life. This is the pain and the suffering, the momentary suffering, the momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. Why do we hold on to the little red thing? It's the human heart. It's the human heart. But God will help us to see beyond. So Jesus said to them, you're going to rule. And then for us, verse 29, by the way, that's for them. That's not for us. So this is not the church of the Mormons where they have 12, all that stuff. That's just weird. But verse 29, it kind of expands to everyone else. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold or a multitude and will inherit eternal life. Some say in this life they'll inherit those things. In other words, whatever you give up for the kingdom, if you follow the Lord and, you are, and he asks you to give up something, and notice these things are important, their family, their relationships. Notice he isn't saying give up your wife. He's not telling you to get divorced to go follow Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. But the other relationships, and, and I assume these are grown kids. That's what he's talking about, right? You don't just leave your kids at home following the Lord. That's, that's weird. Don't do that. 
Like you're called to take care of your family, take care of your family, right? But the Lord calls you to go out on the mission field. He calls you to leave San Diego and to come up to Walla Walla. He calls you to leave everything you've known and go to a place you've never been. And you follow him. He says, listen, I've got you covered. Whatever you're giving up, you're going to get a hundredfold in relationships, either now or then. I don't know. I'll take care of you. I've got you. That's what the kingdom's about. And notice it's for my name's sake. Not our selfish aspirations, not all those things, for the kingdom. For the kingdom. For the kingdom. What's God calling you to give up and go to? What's keeping you from obeying Him? May the Spirit speak to us. And you're going to inherit eternal life. Hey, you know, what you, I thought you said, wait, I'm going to get eternal life? I thought I have eternal life. Yes. You have it when you believed? It's being sanctified right now, and on that day you see Him face to face, and that glorification you will inherit eternal life. It's, it, salvation is a, is a big picture. You get it, you have it, and you will have it. It's, you're saved. I love that. So, this promise is not only for the apostles on that second part, but it's for believers who, put, who, follow, who actually follow Jesus. And that's what we're doing. We follow Jesus. Amen? I want to encourage you to follow Jesus. Take a bold step of faith and follow Jesus. You only have one life. You only have one life. Pray about it. Don't get weird. Check the passages out with other people. Amen? And say, I think this is what the Lord might be doing in my heart. And take bold steps of faith for the Lord. Amen? And watch Him do what He's going to do. And watch Him be faithful to His promises. He never never, never comes up short on his promises. He will always take care. And so, verse 30 says, but many who are first will be, will, uh, will be last and the last will be first. I'll leave you to chew on that one because that actually thrusts us into chapter 20. Love you guys this morning and I know the Lord loves us and uh, just pray that he stirs us in the spirit to run towards him, to be his witnesses, and to live boldly after him. Don't let possessions possess you. May, they, may you possess them. Amen? May he possess us. So, Father, we come to you now, Lord, as we've been sitting in your word, and we just want to thank you for this beautiful day. We pray you bless our food as we gather and eat a bunch of hamburgers. Uh, we know that you'll bless our bodies for that. <laughs> bless our fellowship and our love for one another and our time together. It's in all in your name we pray. Amen.